was doing a little research this week, and I, I found a definition of wisdom that I want to share with you this morning. It bears on what we want to talk about from the Scripture. Wisdom is knowledge of what is true, coupled with judgment, which leads to action. I'm going to repeat that for you, but wisdom is knowledge of what is true, coupled with judgment... That leads to action. Now, if you are tracking with me here, you know that the second half of that definition is really the key, isn't it? We have to have the knowledge, but we then need to take that knowledge and we need to do something with it. So here's what's happening in our country right now. Over the last 40 years or so, college attendance rates have doubled as have college graduation rates. Twice as many people are going to college and twice as many people are graduating from college as were 40 years ago. So, as a country and as a society, we are getting smarter, right? Are we? I don't know if I could say that. We could make an argument, in fact... That most of what we need, most of the knowledge, most of the understanding, most of the wisdom that we need to live life can be found in a sandbox. Share your toys. Don't hit other people. Don't take stuff that isn't yours. When you do something wrong, say you're sorry. And when you go out into the world, watch for traffic hold hands, and stick together. You could make an argument that in this country right now we have more knowledge than we have ever had, but the question is, is it coupled with judgment that leads to action? Now, the last four Sundays that we've been together, the four Sundays of December... We've been looking into the scripture and we've been looking at the Christmas story. We've been looking at the passages that talk about it, the actual people, the actual events. If you are here the first Sunday of December, we looked at Joseph and we found out that Joseph was in the royal line of King David. His family was in line to be on the throne, but but the throne had disintegrated. It had disappeared. It had no power anymore. And we saw that Joseph was willing to trust God's plan over his own. The next week we saw Mary. We realized from the scripture that Mary was very young. She was likely very poor. She was uneducated. And yet she was chosen by God. And she was full of grace and faith. Then Pastor Tim talked to us about Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who had been barren her whole life and was now elderly, but suddenly was pregnant and worshipful because of what God was doing in her life. And then last week we talked about the shepherds, just ordinary guys doing their job. And God came to them with the message of the Messiah. So now you know what really happened. This is the Christmas story based on actual events, but what do we do with this knowledge? This is my question for you today. This is what we're going to see from the scripture as we look at one last thing this morning. Will you take what you know about Jesus and do something with it? In this last session, we are going to look at one more group, 
the Magi. We call them the wise men. If you have a nativity scene, there's probably wise men there. We won't get into all of the ramifications of that and how inaccurate that. Well, maybe we will. Maybe it'll come up a little later. We call them wise men, but what I want you to notice as we track their story is that that description of them is doubly true. And we're going to see that the wise seek Jesus. So you ready? Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Everybody ready? Good. In that spirit, we set forth. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. If you have your, I'm just so happy to see so many people actually pulling out a Bible. John Yates, I can see you there with your iPhone. That's all right. That's all right. I still love you. God still loves you. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. John knows better than to spend any time with me up in that basket because when I spend time with you, I tend to notice you more in the crowd and then I single you out for things like reading the Bible off your phone instead of bringing your Bible. So now no one will come anywhere near me for the next month. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. This is the only, by the way, just a little nugget for you. This is the only place we see the wise men. Okay, the only place in Scripture. They're not mentioned in the other Christmas stories just here, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born, or has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So, again, wise men is what our Bibles typically say here in English. The Greek word is, is the word magi, M-A-G-I. And it simply means, it was used to mean someone who was an astronomer or an astrologer. Sometimes it was even used for someone who was a wizard, a magician, someone who was involved in the dark arts, as they used to say. That is the word that is used here. Now, the reason why we did this series, once again, is to, to confirm Scripture and dispel myth when it comes to these people and events. So you probably know that there is a Christmas carol out there called We Three Kings, right? So we need to understand here before we go any further that these guys weren't kings and nowhere does it say that there were three of them. Okay. The only way we get three, where three comes from, you know where three comes from, right? Because there were three gifts that were specified at the end of the passage that we're going to see in a few minutes. But there's no indication that there were only three. And they weren't kings, they were counselors to kings. How many people know who Daniel was from the Old Testament? You know, Daniel in the lion's den, maybe, if you know anything about Daniel. Daniel was a magi. In effect, he was a counselor to a king. Do you remember? Well, uh, maybe you don't remember, but if you were to go back to Daniel and you were to read his story, you would find out that Daniel and his three friends were captured in Israel and they were brought into the Babylonian court of King Nebuchadnezzar and they were nurtured and they were taught. And then when the king had problems and questions, he called them. And you remember there that one night Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he called his magi and said explain this dream to me I'm very troubled about it and they looked at the stars 
And they tried to figure out what it was. And they tried to divine it by sorcery, what Nebuchadnezzar's dream could have meant. And they could not explain it. And finally, somebody thought to call Daniel. And Daniel came and he said, I'm not going to look at the stars. I'm not going to try to source this from spirits. I'm going to tell you what God is telling me you dreamed about, king. And he did. Okay? That's what Daniel was. He was a counselor to kings from this same area that these guys likely came from. They likely came from the modern-day area of Iraq or Iran, somewhere to the east, it says, of Israel. The Magi and their servants came, and there were probably an armed contingent of guards with them. That's why we need to understand, again, we don't know if there were two Magi, three, five, ten, whatever, but this would have been a big group of people because they were very important men. And as we're going to see in a moment, they were very wealthy. In Iraq and Iran, were five, six hundred miles away, and so they would not have taken this perilous journey with all of this treasure without soldiers. So there could have been 20, 30, 40, 50. There could have been 100 people in this contingent. We don't know. They studied the heavens. The line between astronomy and astrology was vague at this point in history. Of course, you know that astronomy is studying the stars and the planets and their movements and their pathways, where astrology is studying those things in order to try and determine the future. And that line, that, that division between those two things was very vague at this point. Of course, we know that the Bible forbids astrology and forbids fortune tellers and the like. But God used this star knowing that these guys would be watching. He used it to get their attention and call them to Jesus. Now, we might look at that and we would say, well, well, why would Jesus do that? Why would God do that? If the Bible forbids astrology, if the Bible forbids this kind of thing, then why would God do that? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that God did that because God speaks to sinners. And he uses all kinds of things in people's lives to draw them to himself. He did that for, because the gospel is for those who respond when God calls. And so God in his wisdom and according to his plan of redemption that existed before time began, the scripture tells us, he put the star in the sky and the Magi saw it 600 miles away and they said, we've got to go see what this is about. So they got their servants, they got the soldiers, they got their treasure, they got their camels, and they loaded up, and they headed west to Jerusalem. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they got there. I don't know how long it took them. I don't know what camel miles per hour are like. So it probably took a long time, all right? Took a long time. They finally got there, and they started asking questions. Now, this got back to Herod the king. That there was this group of foreigners, wealthy foreigners, traveling with a bunch of soldiers, and they were asking about, what does it say? They were asking about the king of the Jews being born. Well, 
It says here that this troubled Herod, it agitated him, it disturbed him. Figuratively, this word means that he was shaking. This entourage was big enough and their arrival was splashy enough to get his attention. And not only shake Herod up, but shake up the whole city. And he wanted to know what was going on. So he brought in the resident Jewish experts, the chief priests and the scribes. Now, the reason he did that is because the Magi were looking for the king of the Jews. Okay. Try to, try to stay with me now. It's only, well, that actually, that says it's 11.30, so I don't know where we are in time. So don't even worry about your watch or your phone or the clock. We'll just do what we need to do. He was looking for, they were looking for the king of the Jews. So Herod called the chief priests and the scribes. Why? Because they were the experts in Jewish history and Jewish prophecy. And interestingly enough, Herod himself was half Jewish. His mother was Jewish. His father was not, but his mother was. So he had a little bit of understanding of Judaism. But more importantly, at this moment, when the Magi showed up, Herod was the king of the Jews. Right? Are you following what's happening here? Hey, where is the new king of the Jews? Wait a second, I'm the king of the Jews. The new king of the Jews? <laughs> and so Herod is upset. He's disturbed. He's, he's trembling at the thought of what might be happening. Now, in particular, this was very threatening to Herod, who, if you look at him in secular history, you find out that, that Herod was a very powerful king. He was a very talented king. But at this point in his life, he'd been in power for about 30 years. And secular historians tell us that as he got older, Herod got more and more paranoid. He got paranoid about someone overthrowing him taking his throne, stealing his power. In fact, so much so that it is well known that Herod had his wife and three of his sons killed over the course of the years of his reign because he was afraid that they were scheming to take his throne, to take his power. So he feared that these guys were maybe plotting against him too. And they show up, so he says, what do you guys say? What do the experts say? Look at verse 5. This is what the chief priests and the scribes told him. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and this is a quote, and you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the experts come in and they tell him, this is the prophecy. This is Micah 5.2, if you're interested. This is a quote from the Old Testament. There will be a king of the Jews born in Bethlehem. So they verify what the Magi are telling them. Yes, there is supposed to be, at some point, a king to be born in Bethlehem. But here's what I want you to notice from that couple of verses I just read for you. 
Notice the reaction of these religious scholars. Okay? What does Herod say? Hey, there's a whole bunch of guys, foreigner, rich foreigners, and they're coming because they want to pay homage to the new king of the Jews. Tell me what's going on. Yes, there will be a king of the Jews born in Bethlehem. Now, who knows more about the scripture than these guys? Nobody, okay? They literally, this was their job. That's all they did was study the Old Testament law and study the prophets. No one knew it better than them. They confirmed the story of these foreign visitors. And what is their reaction to all of this? What does the scripture say is their reaction to all of it? You can't find it because it's not there. There was no reaction. Nothing. Apathy. They don't care. So here you have the Magi who have traveled hundreds of miles across the desert to get here to worship this king. And these guys don't care to go five miles. Literally. From Jerusalem to Bethlehem is five miles. They don't even send a servant, hey, go check this out. Run over to Bethlehem this afternoon and see if you can see, is there any buzz around, any new families moving, to any new babies in the last few months? Nothing. They had knowledge, but no wisdom. They had the information, but there was no action. Okay, file that away. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now the word ascertained here, he summoned them back in and he ascertained, that literally means under careful examination to get accurate information. In other words, he went to them and said, okay, guys. Tell me everything. Tell me everything you know. Everything you figured out. Show me your notes. I want to hear all of it. Herod wanted all the information. This really mattered to him. He wanted to get it right. We know because he wanted the threat eliminated, and that's not just my supposition. We're going to see that later in the passage. I want you to search diligently. I want you to make sure you find this kid. Because I want to come and worship him too. Yeah, right. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the house... Or, sorry, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. So, look at the reaction that the Magi have. We saw the reaction of the chief priests and the scribes, they couldn't care less. But look at the reaction that the Magi have. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I can't, yeah, I, I don't, I can't read Greek. I know sometimes I give you a word and you're all amazed. 
but it's just a word. I, can't re- I couldn't read you this line accurately and do it justice, but suffice it to say that in this little phrase, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There are multiple superlatives here. What the writer is saying here is they were really, really happy and rejoiced so much it was incredible. They just went over the top in their rejoicing. That's what it means here. The implication of the word uh, pattern that he puts together here is that it was an all-out celebration. It was wide open. It was all their effort. They worshiped with everything they had. You ever heard somebody say sometimes that you need to dance like no one's watching? I mean, that's the picture I get with these magi. Now, picture this. These important, wealthy, dignified men And they come to the house, they see the star, they come to the house, they see the child, they go in, and they just cut loose. They can't believe it. They've been traveling for days, maybe weeks, over all this rough terrain, and they finally see him, and they cut loose. They're jumping, they're dancing, they're falling on their faces, they're exclaiming, they're exulting, because they found the king that they've been looking for. That's their reaction. It says here that they fell down. Literally, they fell on their faces. And they worshipped a child, an infant, A toddler, maybe. We actually really don't know exactly how much time has passed. Enough time has passed so that they've found housing, Mary and Joseph have, in Bethlehem, right? Because we all know the story. There was no room for them in the inn, so they were in the barn or the stable or the cave or whatever it was. But now they're in a home, so they've found housing. So it's been a little while. Maybe it's been a month. Maybe it's been six months. Maybe it's been a year. We don't know. But when they see Jesus, they probably don't know everything. They probably don't know the whole story. They probably don't know about all the angels. They probably don't know about the virgin birth part. They may not even really understand that he is God. But when they see him, they understand that they need to humble themselves and fall on their faces and worship him. It says they offered him gifts. Now, this is my suggestion to you as you think about this little part of the story, which everyone knows, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. My suggestion is that you don't get too caught up in the specifics. I've actually heard messages where guys spend the whole message talking about the significance of the gold, significance of the frankincense, significance of the myrrh. If you want to do that, that's okay. I don't know where we really get that from. But what I want you to understand is this. These guys were counselors to kings. They were accustomed to court life. They were accustomed to being in the presence of powerful people. And it was customary to bring gifts when you visited royalty. If you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see that the Queen of Sheba came and visited King Solomon. And when she did, she brought huge amounts of wealth, 
Why did she do that to Solomon? Because she was acknowledging his power and his greatness. And that's what they did. This was customary. And so when you look at gold, frankincense, and myrrh, this is what I want you to see. Well, first of all, gold is gold. I mean, who wouldn't want to have a couple of bars in their back pocket if things go sideways and you have an emergency, right? It's still very valuable. Thousands of years later, gold is incredibly valuable, so we understand that. Frankincense actually was a, was a fragrant gum-like substance and it was labor-intensively harvested from extremely rare trees. And it was used to perfume things. It's very valuable. And myrrh was a spice that was also sometimes made into a perfume as well. It was incredibly valuable. In fact, if we were to calculate its value in today's terms, we could say that a tiny bottle might be worth up to $10,000. I want you to see here is that they brought their very best. When they came to see Jesus, they didn't bring a package of Oreos and a two-liter of Coke. They said, this is the king. We're going we're gonna to bring the best that we have. We're going to bring everything that we have, and we're going to put it at his feet. This is what I want you to grasp, my friends, the extent the value of their gifts indicated the depth of their devotion. Did you hear that? The value of their gifts indicated the depth of their devotion. I want you to remember that because it's going to come back in a moment. Verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So God warned them that Herod was not being truthful with them. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So again... God uses angels to care for this new family, to warn them, to give them a message. Perhaps they use some of these gifts that they'd just been given to finance their flight. We know they probably didn't have a lot of money, but now suddenly they have these very valuable gifts. And God continues to ensure that his purpose will be fulfilled. He protects them. Joseph, you need to get out of here. Herod is coming after him. Go, leave, go to Egypt. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod obviously eventually clues in that the, the Magi aren't coming back to tell him where he was, and he unleashes this, this terrible cruelty. All the baby boys in Bethlehem and Judea, all the baby boys under two years old, I want them killed. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that must have been like in that little town? For soldiers to just burst into homes and look for babies and rip them out of their mother's arms and kill them on the spot. Herod was a horrible, cruel tyrant, there is no doubt. But notice this. 
Notice the brutality and the determination and the desperation of Satan to attempt to undermine and thwart God's plan of redemption. That's what this is about. It wasn't about the throne of Jerusalem. It wasn't about Herod being deposed. In fact, we know from secular history that Herod died just shortly after this, less than a year or two after this. Herod was dead. It wasn't about that. It was about Satan getting a full view of the plan of redemption that God had been, had been divining since before time began, starting to come into fruition. So, what do we learn from the story of the Magi? Well, we learn that the wise seek Jesus. The Magi were wise because they were educated and they used that knowledge to counsel kings, but they were doubly wise because they sought Jesus. Now let's talk about you for a minute. Now you know who Jesus is. God has led you to this moment, just like he said, led the Magi to Jesus with a star. God has brought you to this moment to an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done, why he came to this earth. We need to understand that knowledge of Jesus requires action. It requires a response. You have that knowledge of him. The question is, what are you going to do with it? I think there are two responses that we can have. To our knowledge of Jesus, response number one is salvation. The Magi and the story of the Magi reminds us that God seeks sinners. He found them. He drew them. He opened their eyes. Remember who these guys were. They were used to looking to the sky. They were used to looking to the stars. They were used to asking the spirits what was true. But when they laid eyes on Jesus, they fell on their faces and they worshiped him. And God still seeks sinners today. The question is, is he seeking and calling you? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then my suggestion to you this morning is that he is calling you. He has brought you to this place. And I don't just mean literally to the old flagship cinema in Oxford, but to this place in your life with whatever is happening or whatever hasn't happened that you wish had happened so that you could make a decision about trusting Jesus, about admitting your sin, about understanding his love for you. And my challenge would be to you, for those of you that are here this morning and don't have a relationship with Christ, is that you would humble yourself before God as the Magi did. Declare your humble trust in him and yield your heart to salvation because when you do that, God will save you and make you his own. Response number two. Response number one is salvation. Response number two is devotion. Now, the vast majority, I have no doubt, the vast majority of you here this morning are children of God, which means God has called you and you have humbled yourself before him. 
But you must not be content to simply know the truth. What did the Magi do when they realized who Jesus was? Once they understood, they worshipped him and they gave him gifts. And not just any gifts, but the most valuable things they had. What's the most valuable thing you have? What's the most valuable thing you have? Your life? Your time? Your energy? Your family? Whatever it is, a full knowledge of who Jesus is, an understanding of what he has done for you, must lead to the response of giving him those gifts. You might say, well, but Mike, you, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm responsible for. You don't, under, you don't understand everything that I have to do, all, that, all that's on my plate. You don't understand uh, how important it is that I do this or do that. I can't, I can't give any more to God. I, I can't do it. Let me remind you of the lesson we learned from the Magi. The extent of your sacrifice indicates the depth of your devotion. Over in 1 Chronicles 21, King David wanted to make a sacrifice and he was King David. And so the people that were around him said, oh, here, here, take this, offer this, sacrifice this. And David said, I will not sacrifice something that costs me nothing. I will pay. I will give what costs me something to honor my God. Can I just challenge you this morning? Don't offer God what is left over, what is unused, what is unwanted we do that so much, my friends. Well, I'll go to church today because I don't, I'm not busy. Well, I can't next week because I'm busy. I'll, I'll care for this person when I have time. I'll serve in this way. I'll give this money. I'll do this for God because, because I have the time to do it. Don't offer him what is unused, unwanted, and left over. That is an insult to the God who gave you everything. It's never enough to simply know the truth. If you truly know, you have to act. And if you know Jesus, you worship him. If you know Jesus, you devote your life to him. So the question I want you to be thinking about over the next few minutes and the next few days, if you can hang on to, that, hang on to it that long, is what is the extent of your sacrifice? that you offer to God. Because we come to this time and we're going to celebrate the extent of Christ's sacrifice when we take communion together. In just a few moments, the ushers are going to come. They're going to pass out the bread. They're going to pass out the cup. As they do that, I would encourage you to just grab a piece of the bread, grab the cup, hang on to it. And when the band is finished with a song they're going to do for us, I'll come back up and we'll take communion together. But please understand when you do that, this isn't just crackers and juice. This is a reminder 
of the extent of Christ's sacrifice for us. And when we do that, we should not do it lightly. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, don't come to the communion table lightly. Don't come to the communion table with sin in your heart. Don't come to the communion table with no understanding of what Christ has done for you. Humble yourself and repent, confess, and then celebrate. That's what I want to encourage you to do this morning as the band plays for us. Reflect on the extent of sacrifice of your own heart. Reflect on your standing before God through Jesus Christ. And in a moment, we'll celebrate communion together.